Hello, microbe friends. I'm Dr. Justine Dees, and welcome to the Joyful Microbe Podcast. It's the show all about the microbes we encounter in our daily lives. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait to share this show with you. Have you ever stopped to think about the bustling world of life thriving right on your skin? Billions of microscopic organisms, collectively known as the skin microbiome, call this complex ecosystem home, playing a vital role in our health. Many of us are unaware of the intricate dance between our skin and its microbial residents. This delicate balance can tip potentially leading to various health concerns. In this episode, we delve into the fascinating realm of the skin microbiome with microbiologist Dr. Ayushi Uberoi. We talk about the skin barrier functions and ecosystem, the role of the skin microbiome in health and disease, microbiome changes in skin disorders, the potential for novel skin microbiome-based therapies, and even some misconceptions about antibacterial soap. And then at the very end, Ayushi shares a cool activity using the fold scope, which you'll have to find out more about when we get to that part at the very end. All right, let's get on to the interview. Hi, Ayushi. Thanks so much for coming on the Joyful Microbe podcast. Uh, Thank you, Justine. This is super fun, and I'm super excited to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm excited too. Um, So you are currently a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania, but you will soon be making the move to Washington University at St. Louis as an incoming professor, which is so very exciting. And your research focuses on how skin microbes strengthen the skin's all-important job as a barrier. But before we get into that, will you tell us how did you get interested in microbiology and what was your path to becoming a microbiology researcher? Uh, thank you, Justine. I'm super excited about my move to St. Louis. Uh, it's going to be all things fun. And St. Louis is like a center for microbiome. So I'm super excited. But <laughs> awesome. my path to becoming a microbiologist is uh, very weird. Because I actually did engineering as a bachelor's student, and I was studying biotechnology, but in India, that is often a lot of chemical process engineering. So I was in bioreactor design, but it was interesting. Uh, when you do engineering in India, in your first year, all engineering students study like the same subject. So that involves like civil engineering, workshop technology, and things like that. So... Uh, it was during my first semester break that uh, I had gone back home for the break. And I happened to meet um, a doctor who had a pathology lab in my hometown. And I said, hey, I want to come work in your pathology lab. And uh, he like looked at me and said, what will you do in the pathology lab? And then <laughs> I said, I don't know. Let's figure this out. And then uh, um, the doctor said, well, we have this molecular diagnostics department, but we also have a microbiology department. So why don't you maybe work with this one tech that we have in the microbiology department? And it was very interesting. The tech that I was working for was taking a higher level clinical microbiology exam, but this was in India and uh, he did not know English really well. Uh, So what he would do is he would give me his textbook which he was preparing from. Uh, and then I would translate it and teach him the next day. In <laughs> that process, I learned clinical microbiology oh, and wow. he taught me how to make blood agar plates. Oh, and cool. then we were culturing, you know, all the specimens that came in. Uh, so it was like a very high throughput course in microbiology at a very young age. 
And I think that's why I've like always studied microbes. But um, but then in my PhD, I actually studied viruses. Uh, I specifically studied papilloma viruses in the skin. And uh, then it was just a logical step for me, which seems like a, quite a change in field to others. But it seemed logical for me to study microbiome in the skin. But that's mm. how I made it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. I I love that you were translating the clinical microbiology textbook to your to the the microtech and then ended up learning along the way. I mean, it's it's true that when you teach something, you learn it to a completely different level. And so it's like you were a teacher <laughs> and then <laughs> You, you know, it's like not only were you just like reading the textbook and learning, but you had to teach someone else. So then you learned it on an even deeper level. So, and I, that's, you know, it makes sense that you would grow to love the subject. And um, so it's really cool. I love that story. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of works well with like the scientific mindset, right? Like in labs, mm -hmm. we basically are quite self-taught and then teach others. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think like that skill uh, translated well. I mean, I can see that now retrospectively, <laughs> but at that time I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it's funny that you, you kind of like you were in engineering, but then went back home and decided that you wanted to go and just see what a pathology lab was like. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But, I mean, gosh, it's taking you to where you are, so I think it's really cool. Um, so, so we're going to talk about the skin and the skin microbiome today. But first, um, let's take a step back and – talk about what the skin does for us. I mean, it's intuitive that the skin is our outermost layer and protects us, but I'm sure it goes a bit deeper than that. And there may be some functions we just don't even think about. Um, and you had a research article from 2021 where you talked about these different levels of this barrier and um, they include microbial, immune, chemical, and physical. So, I'd love to just kind of hear you talk about what the skin does for us. Uh, of course. So it's quite intriguing and important, right? That uh, as you also pointed out, it is intuitive that the skin is the outermost layer. However, if you really look at studies, there are not that many that are actually examining the barrier, uh, like in a holistic approach. And that's what actually came as a gap to me. But in mm. terms of why the skin is important in protecting the host, there are several layers to that. So at its most fundamental level, uh, and this is work that has been shown in immunology, uh, the skin microbiome and the barrier is actually fundamental in educating immune cells, which then go on to protect the human uh, or any host against future pathogenic exposures. So that is at a fundamental cellular level that is going on. But what is absolutely remarkable and something that awes me even today is if you just took a section of skin, like, you know, from histology, which is biobanked and so on, and just look at it under the microscope, the skin has this extremely beautiful and complex architecture. And what you would see if you take, for example, a sample of a human skin biopsy and saw it under the microscope, you would see these distinct layers that appear of different cells. And what is fascinating in that is that each of those layers of cells have their own defined roles. And that is what skin developmental biologists have shown. So what happens is that the skin basically changes, uh, the cells basically change in each layer and what we see on top is the outermost layer. And that is mostly cells that are not dividing and they're dead cells that are continuously being regenerated. Uh, so that whole complex architecture is playing a huge role in not only educating the cells and turnover 
um, in terms of regeneration, but it controls vital processes. So one of them is thermoregulation. And in that, even sweat glands that are part of the skin architecture play a role. But besides that, what is also happening is that if we were to not have skin, we would lose all the water that is underlying in the organs below us. And skin basically provides this protective shield and controls this balance. So it's extremely important to help us retain water and not lose it. And that's actually the property that the paper that um, you cited um, specifically evaluated. And besides that, what is also happening is that with this whole complex architecture, there's this complex chemical biology that is also at place. So for example, the most simple example is sweat itself. And that too is composed of enzymes and releases that actually even protect us from uh, defenses, uh, like from attack of pathogens and other harmful microbes. So that in totality is what the skin really does. Mm. And from my perspective, you can almost view it that it's not just skin as an organ, it's pretty much an ecosystem. So it's consisting of these diverse populations of cells that talk to each other to make sure that skin behaves itself. And then uh, it is also home to the microbiome and uh, that makes it almost like an ecosystem. So that's what I really think is going on. And I hope that provides a general overview. Mm. Yeah, it does. And I think <laughs> the idea of having no skin, meaning that we would lose all of the water in our organs is kind of mind-blowing to think about. I mean, uh, just yeah. like that it's, it's like holding yeah. us together in a lot of ways. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it would lead to uh, desiccation and dehydration. Mm. So, mm -hmm. in fact, like in people who have these defects, um, there are these desiccation events and like dehydration. And it's like so incredible, right? Like people talk about dry skin, oily skin and so on. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, sometimes we take that so for granted that we don't actually delve into, oh, there's like real biology at play here. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think, you know, we're usually, it's easy to kind of just think about the skin on your face because that's what people want to take care of and make themselves look better. And so they call it like, I've got oily or dry skin. But the truth is, it's, there, <laughs> we've got dry and oily skin in different places on our bodies. And it's, it's like it's pretty weird to think about like all these different little like m ecosystems all over the skin and you've like I've heard people describe certain areas as like a desert and others like a rainforest and you know like in your armpit you sweat and then the fact that there's like different types of sweat I mean it's it's absolutely amazing uh, absolutely. You've touched on like a very intricate and a complex system itself because skin in different parts, actually, even if you looked at it under the microscope, looks completely different. Mm. And uh, absolutely, even in terms of the, you know, what we call, uh, this is often called the biogeography because mm. of these different environments that these uh, different locations on the skin have, uh, they actually support completely different microbiome um, compositions. So if mm. one were to look back at the more seminal papers in skin microbiome, and I happen to work for Dr. Elizabeth Grice for my postdoc, who uh, basically published the pioneering paper with Julie Segre during her postdoc, uh, it's very clear from the findings that uh, different locations have completely different um, microbial biodiversities. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's what was fascinating to me during my PhD work. And I said, Oh, this is fascinating. I want to study more about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it is really interesting to think about this idea that, that these different locations are different ecosystems and then support different microbes. Um, and I know this is kind of like a chicken and the egg sort of thing, but it's, I wonder how much does 
how much of a role do the microbes play in maintaining like the oily environment in some areas or the um, the dry parts of the other areas? Or is it more just the skin is that way and then the microbes that will thrive there end up there? So that is a very complex question. So uh, we don't really know the answer. And as you pointed out, it is sort of a chicken or egg situation. But what I can tell you, like, for example, uh, like the oiliness of the skin, supposedly, is actually coming from sebocytes. Uh, so those produce sebum, uh, which is actually what we're calling as oil, right? So uh, those are invaginations that sit also like near hair follicles in the skin. And uh, those support like a completely different nutritional environment. So actually recent studies uh, have shown that that's an environment that really supports growth of like QD bacterium acnes, uh, which is a bacteria that is fat loving or lipophilic and is associated with acne development. And uh, in that case, that bacteria seems to love that kind of a growth environment. But what we also know from microbiome studies, and I don't think, uh, I think for skin microbiome, we're still scratching the surface, if I mm -hmm. may say so. But uh, what we do know from studies on other microbiomes is that different microbes also have different properties. So it is highly possible that certain bacteria secrete completely different uh, chemicals that are important. And I think of, like when you just pointed that out, the closest study that came to my mind is uh, a, this bacteria called Staphylococcus epidermidis, which is pretty much ubiquitous and we can find it across like all humans usually. Uh, all over the skin and it doesn't really seem to have like a site specific preference but it's found at all sites so it's known more recently that staph epidermidis can also secrete ceramidases uh and if you and i know this is sounding like jargon but if you picked up like a cream which is being sold at all the fancy drug stores or like you know makeup stores they all contain ceramidases as ways to improve skin barrier. So hmm. staph epidermidis is an example of a bacteria that produces such kind of uh, chemicals and those could strengthen the barrier. So I think it's like going both ways that uh, hmm. maybe bacteria, uh, it's like a sort of a synergy or a codependence in which mm -hmm. the skin also provides this environment for bacteria to thrive, but there's also like a symbiotic relation where the bacteria are producing chemicals that are beneficial, um, which is not super far from like this view that microbes are the new pharmacists, that we can <laughs> generate so many therapies from them. But that's what I really think is going on. Unfortunately, not a simple answer to that question, yeah. but I think that's generally what I think. Yeah, well... And I figured it would be complicated and, and really hard to know at this point. But your research really made me think about that idea because it focuses on how the skin uh, microbiome is involved in skin formation and repair, which it's like usually I'm thinking about it the other way around where the skin is kind of like has this environment that supports the skin microbiome. But it, thinking about your research made me realize that it goes both ways, like you were saying. So, um, but in the context of skin disorders like atopic dermatitis and psoriasis, um, which your research really touches on, could you, um, and I mean, just knowing about the skin microbiome in general, but could you walk us through what we currently understand about the microbiome's role and um, and then like as we talk about it and what key aspects are you striving to uncover? Uh, absolutely. So what we do know about like common diseases that are associated with this whole a uh, concept of what we call barrier dysfunction, which is basically uh, ability of skin to not, or disability of skin to control um, 
you know, this hydration parameters and also increased susceptibility to pathogens. These are pretty much hallmarks of a lot of common skin diseases. And that includes atopic dermatitis or eczema, which affects a lot of children and adults as well. And then even diseases like psoriasis and rosacea. And there's another disease called epidermolysis bullosa. Um, so what we know about these diseases in different contexts is that some of them, these are multifactorial diseases uh, in which a lot of factors play into um, play together in causing the diseases. And that does not exclude genetic abnormalities that can contribute to such diseases. Uh, but what we have seen, and this is what I think I can provide as like a overview, is that what has been seen in all these diseases in microbiome studies, which have specifically looked at the composition uh, of microbes, is that there is often a lot of supposedly bad bacteria, such as those which are associated with pathogenesis, like Staphylococcus aureus is an example. Those are highly uh, preponderant in these diseases. And what is thought is that in healthy skin, we see that there is a diverse microbial population. But in diseases such as this, that diversity decreases and certain pathogens assume what we call hegemony and start outgrowing others. So we have seen that there is a correlation of these pathogens and their uh, preponderance in these diseases. Another thing that we often also see is that it's not just the pathogen itself, which is different. Even in case of the so-called commensal bacteria, which are considered non-harmful, we can also see what we call strain differences. So it is a bacteria of the same species, but actually has different properties genetically. Uh, so not different enough to call it a different species, but it's, a, it's at the strain level different. We also see a lot of differences there. And that is a complex interaction that at least the lab that I work in is trying to look at, and so are other people. Uh, but that's extremely complex. So what we think could be happening is both ways. Again, like how we were discussing earlier, one is these how these diseases themselves affect the microbiome. And then there is this opportunity that can we actually use the microbiome mm. in a way to treat the diseases? And that is actually what my 2021 work set the stage to do. So uh, I myself was very shocked when I we made this observation that microbiome was playing a role in actually regulating genes that are involved in skin formation and repair. And then we go on to show in that paper how that could be happening. But the vision or long-term vision, and that's one of the things that I want to do in my lab, is that with this knowledge, can we actually use that information to make therapies that can be used to prevent or treat these diseases of barrier dysfunction? And that's a completely brand new area of investigation. So I hope we have a lot of fun while doing it. But find like meaningful therapies as well. Yeah, that's really exciting. Um, just the idea that possibly you could be developing treatments based off of this knowledge about the microbiome and the role that it plays in barrier function. I think that's so cool. And <laughs> it'll be really interesting to see what that means exactly. What it mean an organism, would it mean an organism and the the things that it creates? Um, because like you said, it's like these organisms, we're starting to understand them as like pharmacists or chemists where they're sure. they're doing these different things. Um, I've heard other people say like that, that microbes are the best chemists out there. <laughs> they're doing all these different things and making all these chemical reactions that like, you know, they, that we just wouldn't really know to do. And, um, but then the idea of them as a pharmacist too, where it's like they're making something, chemicals that could potentially be helpful. So it'll, it, like I said, it'll be interesting to see if these, the therapeutic intervention is 
like a probiotic type of thing or if it ends up being more of like a a drug type thing. Uh, Yes, exactly. And actually adding to that, uh, what is also possible and something that I'm super excited about is that uh, if we can find what are, you know, the good pathways that microbes affect, which can improve skin, uh, we so that would be taking the knowledge from the skin itself. We can also make therapeutic interventions which can help make those environments as well. So that would be mm. basically tapping into what we call host microbe interactions. So uh, it is possible that it is difficult to make probiotics. Uh, hey there, it's me, Justine, founder of Joyful Microbe. Guess what? I'm not just passionate about spreading microbiology joy through my podcast. I'm also interested in helping others create engaging scientific content. As a freelance science writer and editor with a PhD in microbiology, I bring a blend of scientific expertise and effective communication. No need to hire two people to get the job done. I've got it all covered. If you love what I've created on Joyful Microbe, imagine what we can do together for your project. Whether you're a life science company or an academic and need compelling content, I'm here to help. If you've got something in mind and want to chat about it, send me an email at justine at justinedees.com or check out my website, justinedees.com. Let's turn your ideas into awesome science content. Can't wait to collaborate with you. Now, back to the show. But it is possible to harness like an activity um, and translate it therapeutically for the host mechanism. And that's also a potential way. Like, can we come up with uh, gene targets that actually control inflammation? So that would be a, also a, di- a direct therapy that can be used. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, and I kind of want to just go back and highlight something that you said because it is interesting and it's <clears throat> it's a general idea about the microbiome though um, and it's not a like anything else. There are exceptions. But in general, it seems that health is associated with diversity and that disease is usually um, low diversity where the pathogen rules the ecosystem. And um, so I think that's interesting. And that's also something that complicates this too, where it's, it makes it very difficult to think about it in the sense of a drug where it's like one t- thing that is taking care of this one issue. And if it's true that diversity is important, then the whole thing gets extremely complicated very quickly because you're dealing with groups of organisms rather than single organisms. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, You've touched on a very key uh, observation and that's like of huge attention to like bacterial ecologists um, as well. But adding to the, you know, the concept of why drugs are complicated, what uh, to add to more complexity, Mm -hmm. we don't even know how microbes can affect the metabolism of the drugs. Yeah. Um, So we know that drugs act in a certain way. uh, And when these formulations are designed, they have been conventionally designed, keeping just the host in mind that Mm -hmm. how would it benefit the human being or the, you know, the larger species that is the drug being designed for. But uh, with this whole ecosystem concept, we also don't know how microbes can affect these drug metabolisms and their mm-hmm. downstream effects, which could be both good or bad. Uh, so uh, that's where I think the real value in having these holistic approaches and viewpoints comes into play, because these are extremely complex problems. And um, as we're moving towards, you know, what we've understood now is that actually we need precision therapies to treat people. So I think taking into view both the environmental context as well as the microbiome composition is essential now if we're moving towards that path. 
Yeah. Yep. And I think, you know, you brought up an important point that we don't know what the microbes are doing with the intervention. So, but it, it, there, I think it's neat though, that we do have some data that has shown that the microbes will actually, (laughs) like they are affected by the things like simple, um, you know, like over the counter type drugs that people take. And Uh, like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, what I was saying (laughs) was that this is uh, from a scientific perspective, and even from technological advancement perspective, it's like the perfect time, right? Like today, Mm -hmm. we have all these technologies that we can study these problems. Like, it's not disheartening in any way. It's just that we will be able to make better therapies where we take into account all these possibilities. And the best part is like a lot of people are thinking about it this way. So uh, from my perspective, this is like uh, pretty awesome that all of these efforts are going to lead towards better health interventions. And from a personal point of view, I hope that we can use this knowledge to come up with more prophylactic and preventative treatments Uh, That can we actually come up with like a probiotic community or Mm. even interventions that can prevent diseases like atopic dermatitis um, or like basically decrease the predisposition. So I think of it like even though that's complex uh, from a scientific Mm. point of view, that's like a new puzzle to solve. But from a health and, you know, um, because that's at least my goal and of many scientists, like we want to improve health. this is the right time because whatever Mm -hmm. interventions we make will only be better than the last ones. Definitely. All of this makes me think about a question though, that I I don't know if this is, it's, it's difficult to answer, but it makes me wonder about the idea of the root cause of these diseases, of all diseases. And anytime we try to make a therapeutic intervention to deal with a disease without dealing with the root cause. I just wonder, do you have any thoughts on that? Like if we make a probiotic community and use it as a treatment, but then whatever the root causes still exists underlying, you know, there in somebody's body. So if they ever stop the treatment, then they go back. So do you have any thoughts on that? So uh, I am a trained geneticist, right? Like, so for my PhD, I studied cancer biology and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it would be uh, extremely, I mean, it would go against my whole training and even my thought perspective to not think that root causes are important. And I think when you say root cause, you likely mean something like a genetic predisposition. Um, So I think what it means is that all those interventions are extremely critical, right? Like how we could identify genes that cause certain phenotypes. But what we're understanding uh, with advancement in new technologies is that root causes are also complicated, that it's never just a clean answer. And what we need to take is a holistic view. And that involves both Mm. genetic associations, et cetera. Like even if we took a disease, for example, like cancer, what we understand now is that uh, oftentimes even uh, cancer is actually arising due to multiple uh, mutations. It's never just a single gene. Mm. So uh, even the root causes, like uh, if we're thinking of it from a genetics perspective, are extremely complex. But where I think in terms of microbiome, it comes as it helps in the management of certain diseases. Of course, um, uh, there have been evidences and extremely beautiful studies, especially in the last decade, which have come up with direct interventions that can manage diseases, especially like diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, right, where Mm -hmm. um, uh, direct microbial therapies are helpful. Uh, But uh, what I think we're moving towards is a more holistic perspective in which we Mm -hmm. consider microbiome as a modality in that aspect. Uh, It kind of takes me back to this. uh, There was this lecture which a famous microbiologist had given like in the 1960s. His name is Rene Dubois. And uh, he he called this lecture the Spaceship Earth. And it was to 
scientific community, which was talking about uh, health and immunity. And there he said that what we really need is people who take this holistic view where we actually consider environmental factors as well. And uh, surprisingly, we're not even considering those these days, right? Um, Like, it's a limited view to just go for one gene association, for example. So I think adding to that microbiome is also a facet to it that which adds to the holistic picture. Uh, That does not mean that others should stop studying root causes. It is Mm -hmm. absolutely essential. But I think we also need people... Uh, who are studying this from a different perspective, right? Like, uh, yes. in order for true innovation, we need all those lenses. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, this is a difficult, but it's an important discussion that what is more important to study? I think all of them. And we I have the people to study all of them. <laughs> so yeah. uh, there's room for all. <laughs> well, and understanding one then helps you understand the other too. So they all, they work together synergistically, I think. Um, uh, absolutely. So do you have anything about your work or microbiology in general that you'd like to clear up? I think the general idea that um, microbes are often considered as bad, uh, I think that I uh, think is a flawed concept. Like like this whole idea of keeping things very clean <laughs> uh, in which yeah. like everyone uses antibacterial soaps and, you know, um, those um, treatments that basically do affect what is the natural flora on the skin itself. So uh, I think recognizing more that we live in symbiosis with these communities is important uh, and that actually disturbing them often also affects us. And I think for that, the basic fundamental observation comes from the part that, you know, um, microbiome is absolutely seminal in uh, forming the immune system. So if children were to not be exposed to microbes during their development phases, there's certain immune populations that will never develop, even if uh, children are exposed to those uh, microbes later in life. Uh, So the idea being that there are good microbes out there and possibly more good microbes out there than bad ones Mm -hmm. uh, is extremely important. So I think that's one concept that I often think uh, that people really obsess over uh, that they think all microbes are bad. Uh, but it's extremely complicated biology. And I actually think that if we were to not have microbes, we would also not have functional immune systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. It's definitely a point that I try to drive home every time, <laughs> every single podcast episode and and all the work that I do. So I appreciate you highlighting that again. Um and it, since you specifically study the skin flora, the skin microbiome, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on this. I have my own thoughts, but um, as far as like antibacterial soap, what do you think? Because I've had people ask, like, should I use antibacterial soap? Is that, you know, is that a good thing? <laughs> so uh, well, what are your thoughts uh, from, on that? From, from my perspective, we should not be using antibacterial soap because that's yeah. going to get rid of the good flora. So mm. uh, I think a gentle soap without antibacterial activities is better. Uh, uh, also, just to clarify, when we talk about the skin microbiome, even though my work itself right now has focused on bacteria, uh, bacteria are not the only constituents of skin microbiome. Mm-hmm. There are other species, kingdoms as well. Uh, so there's fungi, right. there's... Um, uh, viruses, there's archaea, uh, mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, yeah. And actually, when we talk about the misconceptions, that is another concept <laughs> that I feel people really need to understand. For example, antibacterial treat only bacteria. So if mm. you have a fungal disease, an antibacterial is not going to make you feel better. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so oh, no, yeah. but to answer the soap question, no, use regular soap. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> so, I figured you would say the same thing, but I, you know, it's, I think it's important to consider the, I mean, the soap without any extra thing in it, soap on its own works well to do the job of keeping us 
keeping our hands clean-ish so that we <laughs> aren't going to be spreading germs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's and like you said, I think it's a really good point to make that it's not just bacteria anyways. So, you know, <laughs> like you're fooling yourself if you think that antibacterial soap is going to fix the problem and really it's actually contributing to a, a bigger issue of antimicrobial resistance. So, um, so yeah, uh, yeah, but I think it's a good point about the, you know, uh, we are, we have fungi, we have archaea, um, and viruses and they're all there and it's not necessarily a bad thing. So, um, yeah. So um, what have you learned overall from your work that's changed how you think about microbes in your daily life? I think just the observation that microbes generally affect genes that are involved in skin function. Mm. Uh, that was something that I was not, I was hoping, but I was not expecting necessarily <laughs> to find yeah. that microbes are directly playing a role in that. Uh, that is extremely fascinating to me. And that um, because uh, I do think of skin at a daily basis, <laughs> um, <laughs> both from a personal perspective and even as a science perspective. So uh, as when we began the pod, uh, I was discussing with you about how skin turns over, uh, like all the cells keep regenerating. And that's how we get this, um, like it's happening at a rate that is inconceivable on daily and hourly basis. The fact that microbes actually play a role in that process, as minuscule or as, as important as it may be, I think that to me is extremely fascinating. That mm. um, they play a seminal role in even formation of the skin architecture and its general function. So that's something that really affects me on like day-to-day -day basis. And then, mm. Uh, I think from a philosophical perspective, you had pointed out uh, a few questions ago that diversity is important mm. um, for microbes. And I think that has also translated more into my mentorship and mm. uh, teaching philosophies as well. Uh, it is so remarkable to me that when you really think of microbes, it's almost like you're reading a story about human interactions microbes yeah. cooperate with each other to make things better um microbes you need diversity in order to get more diverse outcomes uh mm -hmm. so all of that also plays a role in me shaping up my own vision as a human being and a scientist something that is often thought to be two distinct identities but they're not uh, because good science comes from also being a good team player so I think that's something that I learned from microbes. Really, <laughs> I'm thinking a lot about them on daily basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, <laughs> just that idea that it, it is like this little picture of our lives on the, the micro level. And that they have these different interactions that are similar to ours. And um, – yeah. I mean, even just how you used the word hegemony earlier. <laughs> you know? So it's like it definitely, you know, in the context of these pathogens that take over <laughs> and rule the ecosystem. So Absolutely. Uh, often as scientists, we uh, dissuade people from anthropomorphizing, uh, you know, like uh, scientific mm -hmm. terms and so on. Uh, but I will say that I, I do think about microbes and I learn a lot about them. And uh, it makes for great analogies sometimes mm -hmm. to uh, even educate people about how microbes interact or why that is important. So uh, I think you need all those perspectives. I think so too. And I think the reason why it's discouraged is because we have to, as scientists, think about them in a certain way when we're studying them. But when we're communicating about them, you have to go with the anthropomorphizing them. Otherwise, sure. it's dry and it's unrelatable you know it's it's difficult for people to really get excited about and to understand even on a deeper level because there's no emotion and so then 
But if you actually do make them, you relate them to things that we understand as humans, then we it, it becomes like a story that we can wrap our heads around. And I think that's a really important part of science communication is to actually think about them in that way. But when you're studying them, you have to, it's, I guess you're compartmentalizing these things where you have to study them a certain way. But then when you talk about them to your audience, whoever it is, like you're going to have to kind of flip the switch over to, okay, well now I need to explain it in this way, you know, where we actually relate it to these human terms. Uh, absolutely. So um, what at-home microbiology activity can you tell us about so we can experience the microbial world in a hands-on way? Uh, I have uh, a couple of ideas. So uh, I grew up in India, and uh, if you've met a lot of Indian people, we're obsessed with yogurt. Uh, my mom makes yogurt like every day from scratch at home. Mm. Uh, and uh, yogurt is formed by bacteria uh, and fermentation uh, mechanisms. So um, there is this amazing uh, at-home microscope, uh, which is called Foldscope, which was made by Manu Prakash's lab at Stanford. And it is available at very low prices, which people can buy. And what I suggest someone to do is that then uh, you should just take a smear of yogurt and see it under the microscope and see what you're going to see, basically. Uh, mm. I think microscopy is a very beautiful visual tool of uh, you know, just learning about things and it's extremely powerful. Uh, so that's an activity that I'm quite uh, intrigued by. And I have seen people light up when they put things like kombucha, uh, uh, yogurt and things under the microscope. From the skin perspective, if you wanted to see what grows in the skin, it's actually a pretty simple way, which can be used also in the context of the foldscope, is if you took like a tape or like just a general tape and put it on your skin surface and like, you know, just peeled it off. Uh, what would happen is that the microbes that live on the surface would likely get attached to it. And then you can stick it on a, a glass um, slide and see it under the microscope. Another thing one can do is use nose strips. Uh, you know, those, uh, the blackhead mm. removal strips. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, each of those uh, the pores, like what you look at the uh, strip can also contains microbes. So you can mm -hmm. also put those and see what happens under the microscope. Uh, I think then you will be convinced that there are indeed bacteria living on your skin. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think that's really cool. Um, I think that'll be really fun. And, and like you, I'm so glad that you brought up Foldscope because it's such a great tool that makes microscopy accessible um, because of its affordability. And it's a great tool for classrooms or, I mean, probably more beyond that as well. But anyone who wants to have a microscope, it's it gives you a very easy – simple and cheap way to have one at home. Um, yeah. And then to relate that to, to the skin, I think is, is really cool and very fun. And I love the nose strips idea. <laughs> that was a good one. I, I would not have thought of that. I love that. Um, that's why I love asking this question because, I mean, all of the people that I interview on the podcast have thought of things that I just would never have thought of. So I, I value – your perspective and your ideas so much. So I really appreciate you, you know, coming up with that and bringing that for, um, you know, for the listeners. So um, do you have any resources that you would recommend so listeners can go deeper on this topic? Uh, absolutely. So uh, you may have figured out I like reading a lot, considering I was translating books to the microbiology mm -hmm. technique. Uh, so I have two book recommendations. Uh, one book recommendation I think would not be surprising. It is I Contain Multitudes by Ed Yong. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that's a beautiful book. But then I also have another book recommendation, uh, which also deals with that hand soap question for yours. Uh, and that book is Let Them Eat Dirt. 
Uh, and that is authored by Brett Finlay, who is a microbiome scientist, and Mary Claire Arrieta. Um, and in this book, uh, they talk about how human microbiome plays a role in how we raise children and in pediatrics, uh, but basically in a scientifically tenable manner. And it's a really beautiful book, which I strongly recommend. Yeah. Yep. That is awesome. I love that. I'm glad that you recommended both of those. Um, so I really appreciate you coming on and telling us all of this interesting information about the skin microbiome. And so people may want to follow you and see what research you end up doing. And so um, where can everyone find, follow, and connect with you? Uh, so I am on Twitter. And on Twitter, my handle is Ayushi, my first name, underscore Oberoi, my last name. And then, uh, as we now know, uh, the Oberoi Lab is going to be opening doors at WashU St. Louis. Um, we also have a lab website, uh, which is uh, oberoilab.org. And uh, I strongly recommend people uh, following us and checking out what we end up doing. Even I am very curious about what we're going to end up doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. You do have a fantastic lab website. So everyone should go check that out. And um, you've got some slides on there that really do a good job of explaining what your research is and where you would like to go with it. So I think that's really cool. So I appreciate your time. And um, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Joyful Microbe Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to help others who love microbes to find the podcast, then please leave a rating and a review for the show. And tell a friend. To learn more about the Joyful Microbe, head on over to joyfulmicrobe.com where you will find the show notes and all the links and resources mentioned. If you love Joyful Microbe and would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a virtual tip through coffee. The link is in the show notes and on joyfulmicrobe.com at the bottom of the page. Thanks again, microbe friends. Talk to you next time.